So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Spirituality. I'm Derek Barris. I'm Matthew Rimsky. I'm Julian Walker. You can keep up to date with us on all of our social media handles, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash conspirituality, where we offer Monday bonus episodes and weekend bonus content for as little as $5 a month. You can support us there and we would love that. And on Clubhouse, where I host a weekly Clubhouse, where we discuss every week's episode and other things. There are great conversations. Uh, I did take last week off for the Easter holiday, but we will be back in full force. And hopefully Julian will join again, as usual, <laughs> this Sunday. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Conspirituality 46, Back to the Vax. Our episode 10 guest, Center for Countering Digital Hate founder Imran Ahmed, has been bringing the heat. His disinformation dozen white paper made a huge splash, prompting a conference call with Nancy Pelosi's team ahead of their biannual grilling of Zuckerberg and Dorsey. Ahmed's paper spotlights the fact that 65% of anti-vax content originates from just 12 social media figures. Conspirituality superstars Sayer G, Kelly Brogan, and Christiane Northrup hold positions 8, 9, and 10. Ahmed wants them deplatformed, and he's making it happen. In response, the dozen are raising money and having themselves caricatured as superheroes. Who have they been deceiving and emotionally abusing? This week, Matthew interviews Heather Simpson and Lydia Green from Back to the Vax, an anti-disinformation think tank they founded after fleeing the online cult of anti-vax propaganda. In their first interview together, Simpson and Green recount how mother-centered, anti-vax social media spaces drew them in and exposed them to all manner of anxious conspiracism and what it costs them to leave. They've got a very clear message about how public health communications can meet this entrenched challenge. In the ticker, I'll be tracking the Dirty Dozen's emerging strategy. Derek finally addresses the English elephant in the room, Russell Brand, and Matthew takes an early look at the big reveal of Cullen Hoback's cue into the storm on HBO. 
This is The Conspirituality Ticker, a weekly bullet point rundown on the ongoing pandemic of messianic influencers who spread medical misinformation and sell disaster spirituality. Well, the disinformation dozen identified by the Center for Countering Digital Hate as responsible for the bulk of online vaccine propaganda is now wearing their notoriety as a shared badge of honor. Here's Dr. Christiane Northrup talking about how they've responded to the CCDH report that names them. The disinformation dozen has uh, all gotten together. And uh, so what's so great is, just like with you and me, right, we've, we have found each other. And I've known about many of the people in the disinformation dozen for years, but never talked with them. Uh, so on, we had a, a Zoom meeting. <laughs> so, yeah, they've joined forces for something called hashtag Truth Week, of course, without any trace of irony. And they very quickly spun up a graphic that features them all gathered together as Marvel-style superheroes, complete with the outfits and the capes. They were more DC. They don't have the chops to do Marvel. Sorry. Well, actually, I mean, there's, it's kind of like they were. It was a cartooning app or an avatar <laughs> generator. I mean, it was pretty. It was pretty cheap um, and and quite friendly. I really wonder about the street credibility they're going to gain from those images. We'll put them into the show notes, of course. You can you can let us know. Yeah, it's something. Whatever we end up uh, deciding it looks like. It raises this thorny question, though, about them potentially, about their their efforts being potentially fueled by giving them such public outlaw status. Uh, that they've, uh, they've taken on this moniker of the, the disinformation dozen with some pride. I still buy the argument that if, as is gradually happening, the identification leads to them being deplatformed, it's worth the risk. What's happened over... Overnight, my Instagram reach uh, was cut by half, and I just found out that uh, Ty and Charlene Bollinger just lost their Instagram account, The Truth About Cancer. I also heard from one of my friends in Minnesota that um, I think Sherry Tenpenny has had her website hacked or removed or something. And so at any moment, I could be disappearing. We can only hope. But for now, they're still leveraging their combined social media audiences, what's left of them, to great effect. They've got this new campaign that, as Northrop says, seeks to flip the script. Uh, we'll also be tracking the developing story that she hints at right here. And it turns out that this is a wonderful opportunity for us to flip the script a bit. Uh, in talking with Sasha Stone this morning and Robert David Steele, we were talking about the incredible upcoming tour that they're having through the United States. They're going to be at Mount Rushmore July 4th. Whew. They'll be coming to Bangor, <laughs> Maine, somewhere in there. But Sasha would, would like to use this dis disinformation dozen as an opportunity to really uh, flip the script. So stay tuned as long as I still have a channel, which apparently I do at the moment. We got to oh. get uh, Conspirituality um, co-host Stephen King up in Bangor to to cover that for us. <laughs> that could, I'd love to get his take on it. We also need merch for sale at those concession stands. Well, yeah, we could table. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> At the, at the Conspiritualist Roadshow. You know, the, but the thing is, uh, like, I wonder if Sasha is going to bring his, like, death metal band to Bangor and 
maybe Christiana's going to put them all up in her country house. Oh, they are not death metal. They well, whatever. Are, they are. They are pop metal. All okay, the pop way. metal. All right, power but, pop. Well, this is the thing. It's 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 power pop, but with the uh, Iron Maiden aesthetic from the from the mid eighties, right? Is she going to take care of their dietary needs? Is it going to be like? Is, are the church ladies going to come over and deliver the sandwiches? Or I'm sure they're going to get Reiki before each performance, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean the, the 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 realities of this of what these people stand for in terms of being anti-vax, COVID deniers, terrorist sympathizers. I, I really do find myself wondering if some variation of the band name Grateful Dead might be appropriate. Although right, it is right. it is very much like I did, I did a bonus episode on this uh, that number of the Beast era Iron Maiden kind of uh, artwork, you know, where everything is about Satanism and 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 an evil demon pulling the strings from behind the scenes. Now, uh, Steele, uh, Robert David Steele, and and Sasha Stone are doing this tour to support a series of four films that they've been producing, the first of which is already out, and it's called The Cult of Lucifer. I haven't yet to enjoy it, but I will report back when I do. You take the bullets for us, I'll say that. You watch more content than anyone on this podcast, and <laughs> you have a stronger stomach than I. Well, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, my, my bonus this week, uh, for my bonus this week, I'm reviewing a lot of material on Gaia.com. Did you pay for this subscription? <laughs> I'm doing the seven day trial. <laughs> I, I want to just um, point out, I think Northrop used the phrase, um, we could be disappearing at any moment. And it just really highlights to me how essential these social platforms are not only to the messages that, that these folks generate, but also it, it would seem to, 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 it would seem that the platforms are essential to their identities as people in the world as well. Like, and the, the kind of shoehorning that's taken place when somebody who, you know, could have published in medical journals or worked in research hospitals suddenly only really has a microphone into Facebook. Like there's no, Yes, if she's deplatformed from Facebook and Instagram and so on, she's going to disappear because she's retired from, you know, regular medical service, but also she's not going to get published anywhere in the real world. So they definitely are scared right now. I mean, it's their it's their downline, it's all of their income is a lot of it at least is probably coming through these channels. It's everything. And it, two things came to mind. First off, you know, this this constant call that it's censorship when it has nothing to do with a government, they're private yeah. businesses and they're, they're going against the policies that they signed up for. People don't read when they click, I accept. And so they're going against that and now they're claiming censorship. So it's obvious they were going to make that pivot, but looking at the website, which looks like it was spun up in 1998, uh, which a lot of, a lot of these, you know, people just have no aesthetic. And I, I think that's an important thing because it's rushed because I looked at the week of that they were doing this week, whatever the information, disinformation week, whatever it was called. And first off, like half of the links were broken. Wow. And then and then you go to Wednesday and like the whole idea was every day we're going to give you some information about like vaccines and medical freedom. And Wednesday, it was just give us money. It was just links to their PayPals or to their organizations. And it was just a blatant fundraiser drive because they know they're going to, they're trying to get as much as they can. It's like the whole... 
what's going on with, with Trump and the recurring donations right now. Mm -hmm. It's just like, we are going to drain you while we have you because we're not going to have your attention pretty soon. Yeah. And, and we've been terribly victimized. So please give us money to make us feel better and make sure that we don't disappear. I think, I think Northrop is in a, in a somewhat unique position compared to others like say, say G and Kelly Brogan or even Sasha Stone, because they have, they have very uh, built out websites and, and sort of revenue streams where I feel like she, she has a fairly basic website. I mean, she does have her presence in the world through, through Hay House, if they're still carrying her. They are. Uh, but she really, she really invested in the Great Awakening video series. And, she, and, and the thing about it is, is that the, she really interacts with the community that has sprung up around the Great Awakening video series through all the gifts they send her and all of the letters that she reads you know, as part of her videos so that she goes back and forth between unwrapping the essential oils and reading the lovely letter about her being a, uh, an angel of light and then like these horrific scary kind of conspiracy memes right well and all of that content lives on facebook and it yeah. lives on youtube yeah, exactly and so exactly. it's not it's not being turned back around into some sort of capital asset that she can take with her that's right um so you're yeah. right i mean she she is pretty she is more vulnerable in terms of this kind of um boomer naivety with regard yeah. to who owns her content yeah, exactly um, yeah but at the same, but at the same, but at the same time, she comes from money. Uh, yeah. she, she's well set up. She, she made her money in the, in the new age, kind of like Louise Hay boom time. And so maybe that's not such a concern for her. Yeah. Which is probably why social media hasn't had that monetized loop with her, with her other sort of forms of e-commerce. I wanted to mention too, I keep forgetting to say this in looking at her stuff last week, I went to her Twitter and I noticed that something like, you know, seven out of her 10 most recent tweets were about abundance and about a workshop she's doing right. with regard to how spirituality can, can help you to become wealthy. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. She's, oh, she's no, doing that, that's always been there. That's always, yeah, I, I, I think I, she's been doing that for the last, for a couple of decades at least. Oh, okay. Okay. I, right. I, I, I hadn't looked at her Twitter and I, I didn't see that on her other channels. It was really interesting. This is something I'm going to get into in my segment and a little bit on Russell Brand, but it's just, how how long are we going to keep falling for this re recycling of content? Mm. Like now I'm 45, coming up 46 now. And after seeing it for a few decades now at this point, it's, it's like when are people going to realize that your thoughts do not create abundance and, and all, all of these things that they're just, they're constantly recycled. And I have to say, you know, and I really appreciate how many things that listeners share with us in, in our DMs just to be like, hey, check this out, check this out. And every day there's just more of them yeah. with, with all these followers. And I'm like, how, how desperate are people to basically just not do a lot of work and get rich quick at, with your ideas? Uh, and and how how long are people going to be susceptible and gullible to fall for these these pivots that people keep doing? I, it is kind of viral in the sense that the you know the ideas that are central to the secret or something like that seem to embed themselves within a particular population, and then somehow five ten years later you get a DM in your Instagram account and there's a link to an influencer who has ten thousand followers and they were quoting out of the secret totally and everybody everybody in the comments is like yeah right on this is so this is so revolutionary and 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 it gives me this sense that um the influencer 
has social capital to the, to the extent that they have their particular wedge of a kind of isolated you know, audience that might be related to their other goods and services. And that audience wasn't exposed to the secret bullshit before. Yeah, it's new to them. It's new to them. And so, and so the, the, the various memes work on the principle of novelty and that can work within fragmented influencer landscapes where, where there might be crossover between audiences, but there also might not be. Uh, and also what's the longevity of anybody's secret, uh, uh, grift, right? Like, you know, if, if somebody picks up the secret 10 years after it's published and starts pushing it out to their following, to their followers for what, six months, is it going to work? Are they going to move on to something else? So there's also, it's not just recycling, Derek. It's like, um, you know, the, the, the folks are magpies, right? And so the, the, there can be 20 bad ideas out there, but as long as you keep them moving, uh, you know, maybe the followers won't, you, maybe your retention rate won't suffer too badly when they, when people realize that you're repeating shit. I know Julian brought up James Arthur Ray recently. Yep. So yesterday I was like, where is he? And I went to his website and it's, he's still going. He's so- doing it again after getting out of jail. After getting out of jail for three people dying as a result of him applying the law of attraction in a completely, you know, self-serving narcissistic way. What to a sweat lodge. Back to the disinformation dozen. This week it's hashtag truth week along with hashtag disinformation dozen because they have co-opted that as a hashtag for themselves as well as another hashtag more than 12. And so they're really trying to build a groundswell of people and so far, I saw that it was actually garnering quite a bit less support than I thought, thought it would. Each of the hashtags had more than 100 posts, which typically is not a, not a big hashtag, was how it was referenced on Instagram. But then there's this. Why would we have at a basketball game a section for vaccinated and unvaccinated? What, that, I, what I believe that is telling the public is that there's the unvaccinated people over there are dirty and they are disease carriers and they are infectors of others and literally vectors of death. They are to be avoided. And yeah. I, just, I just wonder why, you know, does nobody look back in history at, at does nobody look back in history and say like, I'm equating this vaccine passport with a yellow star. Saying this person is a yellow star, and and that started with saying that they were diseased and that they were lesser than, and 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 we seem to be going back to something that we saw, you know, what was that, eighty plus years ago or eighty years ago? Having grown up in South Africa, this enrages me. Like I have to, I had to breathe very deeply while listening to that because to hear these these three white guys talking about. The kind of situation we're in right now and comparing it to apartheid, which is which is what the name of the caption of the video was calling this medical apartheid, which actually is the name of something that RFK has put out as well recently. And then to hear the comparison with the persecution of the Jews, just it's disgusting. I woke up to a text from a good friend who we talk like almost daily, actually, on this chain. And it was sharing Russell Brand's newest clip, which you had mentioned about vaccine passports. And he is, we'll say vax hesitant, not fully anti-vax, but definitely on the hesitant tip. And it really got me thinking about this overall. And that's, I posted earlier on Instagram, this, this long tweet thread that I wrote, because you need vaccines to enter so many countries 
in the world for, for decades. Like I can't go to Nigeria or yeah. Senegal yeah. without a vaccine. If I want to travel to certain parts of India, I need a vaccine. I got five and, shots before I traveled to India. <laughs> and and the, never before have I heard an outrage about a vaccine passport. And it's not, and as I referenced, if are you against the passport idea? Like, or is it just purely the vaccine idea? And if so, why haven't you been an activist before about all these other countries? It's because this is the first time you are involved in any capacity. And that just speaks again to this individualist mindset of the conspiritualists where they talk about the collective a lot, but they don't give a shit about the collective. They never look beyond their own little community and where they're monetizing to understand that these sorts of things have been happening. They've paid no attention to public health. They've only criticized a system that they don't understand has nuance and it's, it is really frustrating. And yeah, when I did watch that clip on the feed um, before you even played it here, Julian, and I can only imagine uh, the apartheid reference being compared as you having have lived through it. I mean, now the phrase vaccine passport does seem to be novel. I can't recall hearing it before, you know, before the last few months. So... And and what's the what's the origin of it? What's the genesis of it? I don't know where the origin is. I mean, it, and it actually isn't. It's not anything specific. Like for me to go anywhere in the world, I need a passport. Right. And now it's just if I again, if I I almost went to Senegal for a conference once, and I was getting ready to get my yellow fever shots, and I would just have to show proof that I had the shot. It's not like one thing. It is also being referenced in terms of potentially going to shows and entering certain places of business in the coming months. Well, that's what they're talking about with regard to the basketball game. So is that an active proposal somewhere that that if an arena is going to um, you know, host fully attended events now that they're going to have, that there's a proposal for different sections? Is that, I mean, is, is that a thing? Is that happening somewhere? I only know of the the consideration of entrance to certain places. Them mentioning that, I'm not saying it's not true because I, I just don't know where they came across that, but I haven't seen that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I have a sense that there's there's a conversation about how to effectively manage gradually opening up different types of business, different types of travel, and that it certain people are saying, hey, it would be good if we if we maybe had a way of seeing who was vaccinated and who wasn't, so as to do this more safely. And then these kinds of conspiratorial folks are latching onto it as further evidence of a creeping tyranny and infringement on civil liberties. And and certainly, you know, a segregated basketball stadium would be something to grasp onto. You can imagine sort of absolutely these these water fountains for vaccinated people and those water <laughs> fountains for non vaccinated people. It's not like, a good look. The, the idea doesn't make sense though, because because if it's an aerosolized disease, uh, it's not like it's not like having different sections in a in a in arena full of twenty thousand people is going to protect anybody. Uh, the, the 20,000 who aren't vaccinated are going to breathe all over the 20,000 who are or the vaccinated folks who are carriers uh, or who happen to be asymptomatically carrying. Um, it, it's I, I just it, the, the idea doesn't does make sense. Well, let me just say this, too. The, the, the metaphor is completely ridiculous too and and he uses the word literally and and he, he means what he says but it, that that's what screws up the metaphor the, saying that people actually are potentially vectors of disease 
because of an actual virus is 100% different than imputing some sort of essential uh, uh, dirtiness to a particular race or or ethnic group. Right? Yeah, that, it's, that, it's, that just that was what got me the most because that has been used over and over again historically and problematically. And this is not that. They yeah. talk about history and they're trying to pull out historical instances to reference. We have plenty of historical references of what happens when viruses ravage a population. Why not point those out and then talk about the means by which we got through those viruses? But that's not what they're doing. They don't actually want to reference actual data in any of these arguments. Well, they do want to um, displace or reframe the shame of their views into this perception that they're being they're they're being seen as dirty somehow that you know because because we're talking about a, about people who you know because of their ideas about sovereignty or yeah. about uh, you know the the perfection of their immune systems they're not going to submit to vaccination and and that's what will make them essentially dirty or bad people and I don't. Yeah, I mean, I guess they have to do something with that shame, uh, and and creating the scenario, the fantasy in which they are described as being, you know, the the kind of filthy others, uh, yeah. really fits the bill, I guess. But that's not what the issue is. The issue would be, you know, if if you haven't had this treatment. You know, this science shows that you might be communicable, and so uh, this is what we're going to do about yeah, it. It's this, not, is, this is not persecution. No, you're not a sinner. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's interesting because it does it does feel like these people are framing the um, uh, the 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 sense that that they have a fundamental disagreement with reality as though they're being accused of sinning. Well, in, in another development uh, that's related, uh, Children's Defense Fund, which is uh, RFK Jr.'s organization, has a new documentary called Medical Racism, The New Apartheid. And what they're doing for the, the, the amount that I was able to sit through is taking Gates and Fauci trying to ensure that minorities and people at the greatest risk get vaccine access and then flips that script into some kind of guinea pig narrative, right? That that poor people and people in India and people in Africa are being experimented upon instead of that, you know, there's a, there's a philanthropic medical attempt to save lives. Uh, here's RFK Jr. At, uh, underneath the film. It says, together, we can work towards ending racism in medicine, as well as targeting people of color in medical experimentation. So the, the, the co-opting and, and then the attempting to frame this as some kind of progressive cause is just mind-blowing. It, it, it only works because of abstraction. It only works, I think, because he's talking about the global south. He's talking about places that, that people don't have you know, social or, or actual access to. Because the facts are that you know, if we take the example of, of my home province of Ontario... Uh, the highest uh, rate of vaccination uptake in the population, according to the rollout, the way the government has planned it, is in 
white affluent neighborhoods and it's the essential workers it's the uh uber drivers it's the um uh amazon warehouse workers it's every basically everybody who is brown and black and in labor positions uh here in toronto and greater toronto and the rest of ontario uh who are lagging way behind in terms of their access to vaccines uh and so it's actually the opposite yeah that 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 you know the the i mean we've known this from the beginning that that uh, the COVID hits in disproportionate ways, and and so, it, but if you were going to flip that around, you you couldn't flip it around because it's actually the people who are dying in larger numbers are the ones who are not having access to vaccine uh, here here where I live. Um, you couldn't say that they were being experimented on, uh, except in ways that epidemiologists could predict, which is if you don't vaccinate vulnerable populations, they're going to be, they're going to be hurt. Yeah. I mean, two things. One is that this, this kind of propaganda ends up hurting the very people that you're claiming you're trying to save and ends up perpetuating actual underlying racist problems that, that mean that those people are, are dying and disproportionately and suffering disproportionately. Uh, and the other thing is when you you talk about uh, how trials are run and how vaccines are developed. They're developed all over the world to try and get uh, access to as broad a gene pool as possible to make sure that they work on on people other than white college students in London, for example. Oh, right? stop with the science. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, here's a spoiler alert. I'm going to talk a little bit about the main reveal in the riveting HBO documentary by Cullen Hoback. It's called Q Into the Storm. I haven't watched yet. I haven't finished, Matthew. What are you doing? You're spoiling it. Well, you can you can go into the next room. If, if, you, if, if, you, if you want to feel it unroll for yourself, you might want to bump forward a few minutes here. Uh, so here's the spoiler. Uh, Hoback shows, rather than tells, that uh, from a about January of 2018 onwards, during Q's most prolific growth and impact as an online fever dream, uh, that that Q was not only under the the poster Q was not only under the control of Ron and Jim Watkins, but uh, he also gets Ron Watkins uh, to essentially slip up and disclose on Skype or FaceTime or whatever they're using that he was posting as Q. Now, he gives himself away. It's about 99% a sure thing. Uh, we're going to put a, we're going to put the spoiler clip into the show notes. It doesn't prove he didn't have collaborators, but, um, the major pieces of the puzzle, uh, are coming together. And what Hoback was able to show is that the original bo- board owner, uh, the QAnon board owner on 4chan, where Q ostensibly started posting in 2017, but probably as uh, a collective of individuals, that owner knew that the poster had changed when they abandoned 4chan for 8chan, which belonged to the Watkins. And then also the language and diction changed during that shift between 4chan and 8chan from something that was, you know, aphoristic and pseudo predictive to language that was clearly responding to daily events or at least trying to reflect upon daily events. 
Um, also, when 8chan was taken down after the shooters at El Paso and Dayton posted their manifestos, Q didn't post for the three months until the Watkins rebranded and then relaunched as 8kun. And when they did, uh, wouldn't you know it, Q was the first to be able to post because it was likely the site admin who is Ron. Uh, and then Ron's Twitter posts after the election sounded a shit ton like Q. And and it's kind of extraordinary that a documentary is able to um, trace this in a, you know, orderly fashion. Um, there's a lot of information. It's presented very, very clearly. Um, but it's in discussing Ron's Twitter posts that Hoback gets him to say, quote, I've spent the past almost 10 years every day doing this kind of research anonymously. Now I'm doing it publicly. That's the only difference. It was basically three years of intelligence training teaching normies how to do intelligence work. It was basically what I was doing anonymously, but before, never as Q. And through the sort of slip there, uh, implying that uh, this this anonymous three years of work was intelligence training, uh, and then comparing that to his um, overt work uh, or his posting under his own name on Twitter, he kind of gives the game. He kind of gives the game away, and then there's this point where he smiles and grins, and 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 the and the director and Ron uh, Hoback and Ron uh, know basically that uh, it's been slipped and the fact that it's ron watkins is not that surprising it's a kind of occam's razor proof as uh mike rothschild tweeted he's he's a journalist who's covered QAnon for years now and his big book is due out in october he says the lesson for me is that sometimes the most obvious answer to an obscure riddle is also the true one ron watkins being q was always staring us in the face we just had to want to see it What's surprising to me and really uh, an incredible tribute to the power of good journalism is that is is how Hoback did it. Now, everything I said two weeks ago, I feel vindicated about because Hoback's process is just fantastic. And, and you can see it play out in the last two episodes. Um, he has incredible patience. Three years of intense embedding. By the time uh, he has that final conversation with Ron Watkins, he probably has hundreds of hours of film with him. And, um, you know, as, as many people have pointed out, before this documentary, there were hardly still pictures, uh, photographs of Ron Watkins available online. This is a very private person. And somehow Hoback earned his trust uh, through a very long process and got him to a place where, uh, you know, there's there's hundreds of journalists contacting Ron for an interview, uh, and he wanted to talk with Hoback. More than that, he wanted to share the quote-unquote brilliance and nerve of what he was doing with uh, the QAnon story. Ron almost couldn't resist telling him, and Hoback let him choke on his hubris. So we're going to dedicate an episode to this documentary and to the aftermath. We're, we're trying to book uh, a really good guest for that, uh, and we'll do that in a few weeks. But I think what's most pertinent to the conspirituality beat is that now now that Q is pretty much sunlit and and bleached out, I think we can really turn our attention to how it caught fire. Uh, not amongst those who have already been 
thrown under the social respectability bus, um, you know, the stormers and the Q-tubers. But, you know, amongst the mainstream influencers and their markets, you know, on the podcast, we are never really dealing with anonymous actors. We're dealing with deceivers, deceivers who are totally open and brazen, and the complexity of their networks remains lucrative. The Watkins are unmasked now. And, you know, as, as Hoback says in a number of interviews, you know, sunlight really does disinfect when you can see the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. You know, who's going to believe uh, in the next thing that he does? When you see a magic trick performed uh, and you see how it works, how, how are you going to be f- fooled again? And I really think, you know, the, the, the Watkins are, are done. Um, but, you know, as we know, the disinformation dozen will keep making bank. Uh, and also, we're going to have to dig more into Ron's meditation and martial arts background. Well, right there, I think you nailed it. And let me start off by saying that a couple of weeks ago, I am very glad that I was wrong, that it has unfolded this way. And I have, I'm three in. So, but watching how you guys have been handling this in Slack all week, I'm like, wow, I'm really happy that it came together so well. So uh, I can't wait to finish it this weekend. That being said, what you said about the earning the trust and the hubris, because there's that moment in episode three where he, where Ron, uh, the Auckland shooting had just happened. And he talks about like, everyone's contacting me, but I only want to talk to you. And then there's this montage right around that where, you know, he's, he carries a sledgehammer up to the top of a mountain <laughs> right. and Hoback has this drone over him. And I'm like, wow, yeah, they, he yeah. really exploited his hubris. He's like, here's this kid who's supposedly been practicing martial arts since he was two years old and I'm going to film him and I'm going to get him up on a mountaintop doing mm-hmm. martial arts right. and really show him like the power of the media and what he can be. And then he slips up. It's such a great story. You know, and I think just to, um, you know, go back into my early uh worries about the focus you know is it is it really that important to unmask q i'm i'm really sold on the power of what hoback has done no documentary can do everything uh he's not going to be able to you know he it wouldn't have been appropriate for it to have been 10 hours long and to follow mm. a bunch of QAnon survivors mm. uh you know the the work on the the documentary that somebody does on the QAnon casualties reddit uh is is a different subject, really, um, and uh, it, it's it's going to require a different kind of expertise. And I just want to quote something from uh, his his AMA that he did the other day on Reddit. Uh, he says that I was blown away by that handful of critics suggesting that who Q is no longer matters. Meanwhile, I know of journalists at most major outlets still on the case. Uh, in fact, quote, it doesn't matter who Q is. Quote is a QAnon talking point. Actually. But I found deep down all QAnons wanted to know the truth. I love this. Like he's this. He spent three years with with people who are at the sort of upper echelons of this conspiracy theory. And he says all QAnons wanted to actually know the truth. That's a very hopeful statement to me. 
unfortunately, it seems audiences are getting the series. So whatever fears certain critics projected, they appear to be misguided. Some of the reaction, I love this, reminds me of Harry Potter, where people accepted that you simply don't say Voldemort's name, but saying Voldemort's name takes power away. I disagree with the worldview that we need to protect audiences from so-called dangerous ideas or people. As we've seen, the antiseptic of sunlight isn't all that flattering. Is there any research, I know it's early because the series just finished, but on the number of uh, disaffected uh, QAnon believers. I know there was the pivot where last week people were like, there is no QAnon, there's Q and then there's Anons. And I'm guessing that was sort of an emotional reaction to finding out this information. I think that actually that's a quote from a Q drop uh, that was issued sometime in 2020 when when whoever was posting a Q, probably Ron, was actually trying to make that distinction uh, and was trying to face within the movement this branding problem that that they were increasingly encountering, uh, but yeah, no, I I, I think that um, uh, time will tell, and certainly uh, Colin Hoback's DMs uh, are going to be overflowing with uh, people who are sending in their thanks and saying, you know, I'm I have the spell has been broken. I think that it was in- an incredible final episode. And I, and I agree with everything you've been saying. I also have a little place in my mind that goes, maybe this was in terms of the making of the documentary, maybe this was Ron's plan all along to either be found out or to reveal himself at some point, because then he basically has a six part documentary that has this footage of him on the mountaintop with the sledgehammer and punching the, the post and all of this stuff and sitting there, you know, looking at the camera with, with, with his, all of his weird expressions and ticks, where eventually it gets revealed that he's been the mastermind the whole time. I mean, what a poison chalice, though, yeah. because because um, how long is he going to last out in the wild? Mm-hmm. How many lives has he ruined? Yeah. Uh, how many people? How many Americans with you know military training and and you know the wherewithal to purchase firearms in Japan <laughs> are there uh, who are going to hunt him down on that mountaintop? I mean, the, the rage that people must feel towards this person, which is why, you know, I think he was really dancing on the edge with regard to this, this, uh, this, this potential payoff. You know, do I let this person in on my grift? Uh, do I tell them my secret? Uh, or will I only be the, the, the one who can enjoy my magnificence. It's also fascinating watching the, the difference between how his father lies and how oh. he he has much more of that martial arts training. I mean, you actually see it where he stops before he answers everything, turns it over in his mind, and then replies very calmly. Exactly. Whereas, whereas Jim is just like, just straight out lies, like has no problem, which is more psychopathic behavior. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like uh, Ron's ticks definitely seem to increase after each time he tells a lie though. Right. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you this though, and a little bit of speculation, but so now we know that the origins of QAnon where the money were come from the first porn site ever in Japan, right? That's where they got their start, so pornography and the Pokémon porn sites is where they initially got their funding, so you can look back to that. We have a, you know around the president who's obviously been accused of of rape or molestation numerous times. Now you have the president's biggest 
biggest, the former president, thankfully, his biggest supporter um, now accused of child sex trafficking with a 17-year-old. At what point do, do these people who get caught up in these conspiracy theories, do they actually say, oh, there is an actual problem with sexual assault and trafficking. Why don't I now look in the right places where it actually is? Well, that's that's the question of the mirror, isn't it? Because because uh, what is QAnon really for the normies and the boomers who picked it up, but an incredible offloading of cultural shame and projection. It, well, it, go, it goes to a, to a whole argument you made about the satanic panic when we covered that on the podcast at one point, right? That that it, as long as it can be other people's children over there somewhere in some in some evil, very gothic, you know, bizarre kind of fantasy, then we don't have to face the reality that all around us there is, you know, there is there is these sorts of things are happening with with. Pe- people we know, and it's not about some kind people of people we voted for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you know one thing I have to say um, about well, finishing the last episode is that I, I watched it early on Monday morning because I woke up, you know, Monday morning to the Twitter feed going mad over the revelations, and I actually couldn't really work for the rest of the day. I was um, kind of I was stunned by not only the resolution of the mystery, but also the, uh, yes, so sunlight is an antiseptic, but what what were we actually shown? We were shown that a very small group of people, and one in particular, had the power, the technology, and the, you know, the, the personality, and you know, the, the, the fascinations and the fetishes to wreak an incredible amount of havoc. I mean, to have it, to have the content and the data of the QAnon fever dream and social movement pinned down to one laptop in Japan and one guy who's constantly watching pornography, uh, you know, on a screen across from him as he's typing cue drops and then kind of wandering around trying out his martial arts skills on posts and whatever uh, while going to bathhouses whenever he goes to, to Tokyo and kind of having this completely dysregulated, isolated life. Um, it's just kind of stunning to, to know that, that all of so many things um, that have captivated so many people came out of one person's body and their the contact between their fingers and the keys. There was just something uncanny about that that I'm still wrapping my hands around because in a way, it was almost more comforting to think, oh, we'll never know who it is. It was networked. It was almost like to, to, to actually to ha- not have the answer gave me the comfort of an unsolved conspiracy, actually, right? Where I was able to say, well, you know, there are so many forces involved and we'll never know, and that's just the way things go, and doesn't it make sense in late capitalism? And then 
you know, Hoback pulls back the curtain. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, well, also, yeah, there are individuals who do individual things and they have incredible impact. It's almost like a conflict between a modernist view of the world where there are great figures and great personalities and they do they write great books and a postmodern view of the world, which I have been pretty much ensconced in, which really kind of places personal agency uh, or the actions of individuals to the side and really looks at systems and networks instead. What's, I'm reading a book called The Evolution of Beauty right now, which looks at Darwin's uh, descent instead of origins because origins is pretty established science, but people have always pushed back on descent because it talks about the fact that um, it's not just adaptation is why we evolve. It's also beauty. And when it is beauty, when we are attracted to things that are beautiful, it is a feminine property, whereas the adaptation is a masculine property. So it's a fascinating book. But when I look at incel culture with the Proud Boys and how they are only allowed to masturbate once a month in the, in the company of a woman compared to Ron, who goes to Soapland to get it off and is very blatant about his pornography, uses. He doesn't try to push it down, but that is, you know, he has the doll. That's his only connection. But all of these things funnel around sex trafficking. And I can't help but think in some way, all of these things are occurring over and over just because men cannot deal with sexuality. They can't deal with the lack of power that they have with their own sexuality when is compared to the feminine. And that is what they are taking their aggression out on. It sounds again, Occam's razor. It sounds very simple, but when you look at the development of the species and all these pieces coming together around this fever dream, as you've often called it, Matthew, uh, it, it, there is an element of that, just disgust of the body or of the feminine body to the point that the men don't know what to do with themselves. And so this is what happens. They take it out on everyone else. There's a piece that's related here too, that, that has to do with, I, I was just thinking of, of Ron as kind of, you know, king of the trolls, right? That, the, that, that troll culture and everything that comes out of the boards in this way, it's, there's, there's such a nihilism about it. The, the insult, if incel culture is, is rejecting of romance and, and, and healthy sex and the possibility of having meaningful relationships and, and so much of political trolling and pornographic trolling and, and everything about it is seeking to undermine anything that is beautiful or true or or matters about being human from this from this place this very grotesque place and and also seeking notoriety through being grotesque in that way and that's that's how i see the watkins well hoback's i think final lines in the narration is you know a man in a green hat reaching for infamy and he really yeah, a cynic, mm-hmm. a cynic who treats the whole world as a game. Mm-hmm. It it really makes me want to understand uh, Chan culture a little bit better. To um, you know, go back and read and reread uh, Dale Barron's book. I feel like you know, as a fifty year old white guy in growing up in Canada, but then I I moved all over. It's like I missed that whole mm-hmm. sort of. St- experience or, or part of the world that, that so many men, white men of, of my age, of our age grew up in, it didn't, it didn't touch me. And so I feel like there's this whole culture, uh, that was parallel to mine, uh, that, that was also, um, you know, homosocial and, 
but I didn't know anything about it. And yet it has had such an impact on my world. Um, it has, you know, exploded into, you know, what, what, what we study on this podcast and, and, and what, uh, Hoback studied in his documentary. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I missed out on all of that too. And I want to, I want to second what you said a little bit ago and you're kind of echoing it right now, which is that, that particular little world and this particular little man, what Hoback does is shows how from Pizzagate to the storming of the Capitol, you have this immense real world impact and everything in between, right? That, that you, the, 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 the different, uh, the, the different murders and, and little terrorist attacks that happened or tried to happen along the way. I had this really weird thought after watching this series, which is I'm really glad I was recruited into brick and mortar pre-digital cults mm. because uh, there was something about, I mean, I suppose I could have gotten out in 2003 and started becoming an internet troll, but like that wasn't really how my culture pointed me. Uh, I was, I was still firmly a pre-digital person, I think. And, and I didn't really have the, the, you know, I didn't grow up with video games. I didn't have the sort of access to the technology that I think a lot of these guys did. And so, and so my life really kind of took place in almost an anachronistic way in relation to, to, to the people who, who now are, are wreaking havoc on the world. So I kind of want to understand them. Like, I think they are men like I am in some ways, but they, but they grew up in a parallel universe. Uh, and I want to know what that is because obviously it's, it's, it's fucked so many things up. You know, my father was a computer programmer starting in the 1960s. I did not know that. I grew up with, with computers my entire life. I just played sports. I just preferred sports than computers. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you could have, so you could could have, have, you could have gone, oh, holy shit, Derek, that's amazing. (laughs) Has that like blown your mind yet? Yeah. I mean, I, I moved to San Francisco in 1997 to, to do journalism. And I was, I was just really frustrated that everything was going toward this thing called the internet. So I moved back to the East coast to be a print journalist. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So there's a really interesting thing about all of us then there's something modernist about about us mm. that that held back from that held back from from uh, you know falling off the deep end into internet land when it was when it was when it was I mean people talk about oh yeah you know back in the late 90s I was on the boards and I'm like what the fuck was that like what are you talking about <laughs> like I had I had I had email maybe yeah, yeah. on a dial up in in rural Vermont and I hated using the internet because it was like it was so slow and hokey yeah. and I didn't ha- I didn't know anybody and like oh, what was a board what <laughs> well, was a board I mean maybe maybe we were dating and playing sports and doing yoga and having having a social life. Yeah, we should yeah. stop. Com- we should stop complaining <laughs> yeah, about the exactly. fucking yoga, right? <laughs> <laughs> I should stop complaining about the yoga, right? <laughs> I've always seen the online world as a wonderful tool for facilitating things that can happen in the real world, and I think this subculture only has the online world for the most part, and this is their incursion into the real world, which is why it was so thrilling for them. Over the past year, I've often wanted to discuss Russell Brand. And we did, briefly, during the Kundalini episodes. Brand has always been a play-both-sides kind of guy, yet as with many conspiritualists, he's hovered dangerously close to conspiracy land. Unlike J.P. Sears, the other comedian in this 
world who did go all in, uh, Brand shrugs it off with a, I'm just a comedian. What do I know? Before, in order to skirt taking responsibility for his often asinine hot takes, which brings us to a recent Instagram video called What Causes, in quotes, COVID, the virus or the system? He starts with the usual, I'm only here for the jokes, before imploring you to take his podcast guest, a real-life scientist, seriously. But what drew my eye to this post in particular was that scientist in question, who was Northeastern psychology professor Lisa Feldman Barrett. And I love Barrett's first book, which is called How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. Of the brain. And I had her on my Earthrise podcast back in 2017. Great, actually, one of my favorite podcasts that I did during that stretch. And she has a new book out called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. I'm guessing the brand appearance is part of the press rush for that book. And as she says in this clip, this new essay collection of hers is in part an attempt to simplify points from her previous book. So it appears that she's going all in on popular science and nothing wrong with that. The Memories, Dreams, Reflections remains Carl Jung's most famous book due to its accessibility. And if you don't know the backstory about that, you should look into it. But it, but it's really important to speak clearly about science, so I appreciate that. And to be even clearer, nothing Barrett says in this clip is wrong. In some ways, it's both obvious and benign. Her sentiment toes a line I've often seen in the conspiritualist world. Disease is not only dependent on the virus, but also lifestyle factors. So we find ourselves in the midst of this entire germ theory versus terrain theory controversy that people like Zach Bush have been championing, which is really ridiculous. Germs cause disease, but your environment plays a primary role. It's never one or the other. And honestly, I can't believe this is even a debate. But what frustrated me about this brand clip is that Barrett plays right into Russell's I'm just asking questions narrative. So to frame it, she cites a study in her book that was in a chapter called Emotion and Illness. In the book, she writes, quote, the diverse set of symptoms that you collectively call a cold involves not just your body, but also your mind. For example, if you are an introverted or negative-minded person, you are more likely to develop a cold from a nose full of germs, end quote. And in the, interview, in the interview, she discusses another factor determinative of whether or not you get sick, poverty. And there are others from this particular set of research, like lack of sleep is a good one. But let's focus on what she tells Russell. People from depressed economic conditions are more likely to get sick when a virus is placed in their noses than people who are financially stable. As Barrett says, the virus is a necessary part of getting sick, just not the only factor. But framing this specifically around COVID while on Russell Brand's podcast was destined to end in disaster. For the past 13 months, we've been inundated with conspiritualists claiming that no one is talking about the immune system when 
all of them are talking about the immune system. <laughs> right. And of course, trying to sell you supplements marketed to boost it. Quote unquote. I've worked in fitness for decades, as we all, we've all worked in this world, and the immune system has been discussed forever. What I think these influencers really mean, and what Brand himself brings up in this clip, is that doctors tend to treat most diseases with drugs sold by a pharmaceutical industry that has a stronghold on legislation in the healthcare industry, and in many ways they are right. Yet they lack even the simplest desire to inject nuance into the discuss discussion, which is why I was surprised that Barrett never pushes back against her, against Brand. Her work is extremely nuanced. Now, as I've long argued, two things can be true. Pharmaceutical companies can be greedy and dishonest, and the current crop of vaccines can be safe and effective. The problem is you can't sell supplements, courses, and coaching section, sessions if the latter is true, so the conspirat conspiritualists obscure the data and only present what they want to. Now, what I want to drill down on here is Brand's response to Barrett. The guys over at Decoding the Gurus did a wonderful job breaking down Russell's rhetorical style a few weeks ago, so I highly recommend checking that out. Now, right after Barrett says poverty is a leading indicator of who gets sick, which has massive social and political implications, here's how Brand replies. So if it's not economically led, it's ideologically led. And it's sort of, in a sense, that speaks to some of the points that I'm making, that, that, that it's more favorable to have a solution that facilitates big tech having more access to people's lives and more access to track and trace data. It, our systems favor a solution where big pharma gets to benefit and profit. These are the systems that we're heading towards. And what are these systems based on? Individualism. You are a separate animal running on these systems, what you can remember, what stimulus you... So, whereas, so what we need to divide is a kind of a scientifically underwritten myth that brings to the forefront collectivism, unity, togetherness, reverence and respect for individual forms of identity. But unless these myths are told, unless these stories are told, Lisa, we're in grave danger of, uh, well, we're on the precipice of Armageddon, but the coronavirus is just <laughs> but one example of how something that's apparently an objective reality, like you said earlier, you know, all the coronavirus is seeking is a nice wet pair of lungs, but whose wet lungs, how many times, how often? Because otherwise, why is there a difference in what's happening in New Zealand or or Taiwan, or the US, or the UK, or Germany. Culture, 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 culture. So there's so many things. No objective reality. We create reality through our imagination. Julian, <laughs> translate. <laughs> translate for us. Go. Now, now, Russell, the, the main thing I want to ask you here is, would you like Caesar or ranch dressing with that word salad? <laughs> right, exactly. So, yes, Holy. not one thought about combating, combating poverty, nor the importance of legislation or economically diversified reparations and minority communities that would actually address poverty. In fact, Brandt famously urged people not to vote years ago. Now, nearly half a million people have watched this clip and are left with no indication that anything actually needs to be done. They just listen to him rant. Now, in 2017, we passed a sales tax increase here in Los Angeles to raise $100 million to combat homelessness. And to date, I believe one shelter has been constructed in these four years. Bureaucracy is rampant in this city, but another problem the task force is continually met with is fierce opposition from locals whenever they try to build in a new neighborhood. And the same thing happens in New York City, where the homeless are shuffled around from hotel to hotel. Residents 
Americans complain that there will be an increased theft, even though the data does not support that. And this NIMBY, the not my backyard problem, perfectly mirrors the conspiritualist fantasy world. I want to complain about the problems and put forward my vision of utopia as long as I don't have to actually get my hands dirty. And of all the figures we've covered on this podcast, Russell Brand has just about the cleanest hands that I've seen. (laughs) And I know he's donated to addiction efforts, he's done good work, and he's previously put his money where his mouth is. So I want to be clear on that. But when it comes to this past year of watching his clips, his play both sides and his COVID fantasizing, he's doing way more harm than good. I'm still my heart rate is still up from listening to that mm. clip and I'm really mm. stuck on his affect and I I think that we haven't really covered somebody well, I think we'll probably have to do a full episode on him somebody who has made this full leap from uh, you know straight entertainment world into pseudo intellectualism and conspirituality is there anybody who compares to that Well, that's why I brought up J.P. Sears, because being a comedian who, because, I mean, Russell, even in his earlier days of comedy, he always had an intellectual edge. That's been his thing. I know there's the Katy Perry marriage and all of that, but he was always trying to, like, think smarter in some ways. And He's always had an incredible vocabulary that he uses to convey some sense of intellectual penetration, right? If I'm not mistaken, he's often in LA and he's a yoga person. So I just wanted to ask you both, have you ever been in a room with him? No, he's, he's a Kundalini yoga guy. Okay, so you wouldn't have gone to Guru Jagat's place one day and Golden Bridge Bridge or anything like that. I'm just, I'm really wondering what it's actually like to be in a room with him because there's this level of constant shouty extroversion that is the hallmark of his media uh, appearances and like this endless pressurized speech and inflation that is just this brick wall for like like regardless of the fact that he's talking shit Mm -hmm. uh it's like it's like I don't know a fire hose trained out of the uh, out of the screen straight at my forehead, and I don't know. It's like it's like is can he stop that? Can he turn that off? That's I was sort of wonder. Like that's why I'm asking. Like what it would be like to be in a room with him? Well, I've been in a room with him, just oh. not in a yoga room. Uh, I think it was one of the wanderlusts where he was talking, and I will say he's one of those people where. There could be hundreds of people in the room. He commands the room. Yeah, yeah. Like he he owns that. So he very much has that authority to be able to step in front of that many people and have everyone sucked into what he's saying. I've seen him on stage. I've seen him on stage in a very small theater when he was he was working on stuff for a potential TV show that he ended up doing a few episodes of. And I, I actually used to follow him years ago and quite liked him. Uh, liked his comedy. You know, uh, he th- there were he, there was some spiritual stuff that I think he made good fun of. And I think, I think I liked him better when he was, when he was uh, acting out his addiction as, as happens with a lot of people who have serious addictions who are very talented on the other side of that, there can tend to be a a need to throw all of that energy into something else. And I think for him, it's been Kundalini yoga and conspiracy theories and, and a kind of pseudo political activists role that he feels like he's playing. 
And he's transparent about that, right? Because I think I've heard remarks yeah. about how, you know, this type of yoga is like is like grass and this type of yoga is like MDMA and this type mm-hmm. of yoga is is like heroin or something like that. So so there's a con there's a there's a kind of a spiritual recovery um playmaking in a way that that is also part of his brand i guess he's when i was on that text chain with my friend as i mentioned about the vaccine passports his newest video this morning i brought up uh amplificatio which is a middle middle ages style of writing and oratory skills which uh, lamorta arthur was written in and it's it's a hypnotic trance style of poetry where the meaning of the words is no longer that relevant. It's the rhythm that you get people Mm. into. And whenever I hear him, it's very much that there's such emotionality coming out of him that you get just entranced. So the, when, if he's one of those people like Zach Bush, where if we transcribed a full talk and then tried to actually link ideas together, you wouldn't be able to, but because of the way he delivers, delivers it, you just get wrapped up. And then he hits certain things like big tech is coming for you. Is the passport, are, are we going to be monitored everywhere we go? Uh-huh, All these things, uh-huh. those, those become sticky and that's what stays. And so any sense of nuance is lost, especially when he's talking. And again, I'm, I'm just kind of bummed because Lisa Feldman Barrett is great, but she definitely was a little, I don't know if it was starstruck or she just kind of let him go on with that. And then she pivoted to a different subject right after that clip I played. Hmm. No, Okay, we are. Have you seen that happen before? Where you know a legit um, author is offered a large platform, and at least in this field, and really is just doing sort of, I don't know, um, content management from their perspective. Like as you said, you know she she speaks she speaks to her topic well, and she doesn't make any mistakes. But she's really on the wrong platform. But what did the PR for the book put her up to it, and and she wasn't able to get out? Well, I don't I don't know how that process happened. I was just speculating on that. But anytime an author has a book out and they appear on podcasts, that's usually what happens. Um, what what upset me about it was she kind of interjected, and again, this is an eleven minute clip I'm pulling from. I didn't listen to the full podcast, but she took the impetus to go and inject COVID on a research that I read in her book and elsewhere on the common cold. And that kind of got to me because I was like, why given, given knowing anything about brand and knowing the current climate we're in, why, why would you need to put forward that and make that comparison? Like, again, her data is correct in relationship to the cold, but what's, and she was really, I was happy. She mentioned poverty as a leading indicator, but the whole setup just felt off. It was kind of like, she was just trying to get a talking point in to get him going. And that's, that's what, that's why I wanted to cover and discuss it. Now it is plausible that she doesn't use social media, that she's been buried in, in writing this book that, you know, she doesn't need to be in the landscape that we spend our no, entire lives in. Oh, okay. All right. So she, so yeah, I mean, I was going to say she, she, if she had listened to our podcast, maybe she wouldn't have taken a risk with COVID <laughs> comments, right? <laughs> no, she's, I've stayed in touch with her since, not recently, but we've emailed and she's very, she's great. And her, again, her book, 
I recommend her book highly, at least the first one. I've never read the new one. But this whole episode, and, and again, what I had to explain to my friends on this text chain this morning was they with the COVID, with the vaccine passport, was like, he's not coming across as anti-vax. And I was just like, guys, I've been watching his videos for a year since lockdowns, longer than that, but specifically in terms of this podcast. And he just dances around it constantly without fully going there. And in some ways, it's it's more disingenuous and it's more troubling because he riles people up without ever have, actually committing. At least the disinformation doesn't, we're like, fuck it, we're going to make cartoons of ourselves and go all in. Well, I mean, this kind of comes back to the intersection and brand that we have between entertainment and pseudo-intellectualism. I mean, isn't his, his, I mean, he's, he's grown up on stages trying to get laughs. And so what's the feedback or validation now for content production? Is it, is it, is it a kind of shock? Is it kind of, um, you know, he, he's not trying to make people laugh with his Armegadon comments, but he is trying to make an impact. Uh, and, and you said, you said, uh, Derek, that, that, you know, he, he has bodily authority when he's in the room, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it would be, I, I'd like to see that too. Uh, I felt that Jordan Peterson had that when, when I, when I saw him in a room of about 500 people, but I also think the line between authority and a kind of like high level anxiety management that then gets absorbed by the audience and, and also, um, is kind of a, an open doorway into conspiratorial, uh, dot connecting, right? Because everything in that word salad was highly charged and kind of jagged. And you're right, Derek, that, that the, the rhythm was much more important than the data, but the data points that do get sort of thrown out and hang in space are offered in a way that the listener is meant to, or encouraged to anxiously put things together into a scenario that is obviously full of doom. And so there's this, he might not even even believe uh, in in what he's saying. He might, if you sat him down and gave him some chamomile tea uh, and slowed him down a little bit, and you asked him a straight question um, and didn't let him go on, <laughs> uh, then uh, you know you 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 might he, he might he might disclose that he doesn't actually sort of follow the, the the lines of thought that he throws out for entertainment value. He's very much rooted in anarchy. I mean, I mean, he's just, I mean, he said that when he was offered, you know, the editorial position on that political magazine in the UK a number of years ago, and then it came out, he didn't vote, for example. He, he so he blatantly admits he wants to see systems crumble and that's fine, but he, he never offers anything to replace them. And that's why I think like, for example, even in this conversation with Barrett, like she's pointing out, hey, who gets sick? Poverty is a leading indicator. Let's look at that data. And he just blows by that to go on his big tech fever dream. I keep going back to the word that you use a lot, but instead of actually addressing something, and that's what really gets me about these people with these platforms is they have an opportunity. Oh, poverty. Well, what, what can we do to do that? What can, how can we solve that? It's like everyone immune system shames 
But the, the only, their only offering is like, well, you should have took better care of yourself. It's your fault that you're fat without actually looking into the systemic conditions that create obesity in a country like America. Yeah. And if poverty, if poverty is a, is a factor, uh, the answer is not, well, don't be poor then, right? Be spiritual like <laughs> yeah. me and, 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 and have enough money so that you feel confident in your life and then your immune system will be stronger. The interesting thing is that he actually turns on its head the anti-vax arguments that we hear from most of the people we cover, right? They tend to talk about the problem with a tyrannical collectivism that is stopping them from being yes. their sovereign independent yes. selves. And he flips that and says, no, this is all about a, the, a narrative about us being separate individuals, right? Right, which, which my big thing is individualism versus collectivism. So even in the way that he framed it was weird to me. But yeah. yes, you're absolutely right on that. Because that. he's very much coming from the left. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's, he's sort of your typical English lefty intellectual. I, We're trying to be. Oh, I don't know. He's an he's an entertain he's an entertainer. Well, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. think and I think we're. And I, I, think I mean, we're, I mean, Matthew. In terms of his vocabulary, his his yeah, pretensions yeah, yeah. are towards an academic leftist English uh, identity. What he really is at his core is much more of an entertainer, desperate narcissist. You know, loudly just just trying to get attention and laughs. The jab. Our weekly segment on the crucial COVID vaccine and the misinformation conspiritualists love to spread about it. Every now and again, someone really well-meaning and sincere on social media will point out to me that if I really want to be effective at changing anyone's mind about vaccines, I should perhaps reconsider my word choice, my overall tone. You know, be more respectful, more cautious, less stimulating of shame or defensiveness. They're probably right to some extent. When they point this out to me, I usually respond by saying I appreciate the input and that I'm always working on this delicate balance. But this week, having just received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine myself with tearful gratitude, I might add, that had me profusely thanking anyone in a 300-foot radius right afterwards, just bowing and with my hand on my heart, I felt so grateful. I want to read some of the appreciative messages we've been getting from people who were actually either anti-vax or vaccine hesitant, but have changed their mind and gotten vaccinated because of our work. So, so they say. Before I do that, though, I also want to suggest that encouraging more tolerance of robust discussion in the wellness space might actually be a good antidote to the kind of fuzzy relativism that enables pseudoscience and conspiratorial thinking. So I'm going to read these all anonymously. Some people uh, wanted us to use their names and some said, please stay anonymous. So I'll just do it anonymously to keep it clean. The first one, thanks, Conspirituality Pod, for saving me. I was reflecting on how much I've changed in a year. Last spring, I was still in New Age Woo beliefs. My friend was sending me Lori Ladd videos. And for years, I was slowly coming to the conclusion from health slash spiritual people that vaccines were definitely evil. This week, I got my first dose. I'm so happy. The podcast definitely saved me from almost teetering too far into potentially harmful beliefs. My friend, on the other hand, I think we lost her to Q adjacent people. We no longer speak. Oh. So that's the first one. Happy and sad. Second one. Hi, guys. I'm going to have my vaccine shot tomorrow. And I wanted to thank you for your podcast because I don't think I would be getting it if I hadn't listened to all the info you have given. I was programmed to believe vaccines were poisoned 30 years ago while in a cult. The fear remains even today, but I'm going for it anyway. 
I'm sure you've helped a lot of people like me. Yeah, I wonder how many um, former cult members will have that as part of their uh, vaccine story, actually, right? Yeah. Another one, I got to jump on here and also say thank you from the bottom of my heart. The podcast was a lifesaver. I, I may have been able to edit these so that it was less uh, less stroking our egos, but anyway, <laughs> right. I, got my, I got my first dose this week as well, though at the beginning of this whole thing, I was listening to Kelly Brogan and practicing Kundalini Yoga. I was also completely lost on the hamster wheel of never-ending self-help and new age gimmicks, trying to heal and become a whole, never quite able to achieve the shiny spiritual ideals the influencers touted. I feel like I finally have my feet on solid ground now, and I'm more self-accepting and clear-headed than I've been in years. Your podcast has really helped me. So these are great. And as someone in the comment section, same, since I was able to snap out of it, my husband and I got back on track, stayed married, have gotten pregnant, had a baby, and we get our first, we get our first vaccines tomorrow. Thank you for doing this life-changing work. Finally, recognition. <laughs> this We're not is responsible for a baby. Is that, that's not what they're saying. Are they? yeah, that, that's for sure. Uh, uh, so all of these are very touching. The last one I'll read really, really struck a, a personal note for me. This is someone I've been friends with for quite some time. We actually had a rupture over this topic uh, early on in the pandemic. And then after not having talked for like the last maybe four months, this is a private message I got. I wanted to check in with you. Even though it impacted me and was very unsettling and provocative, I've spent many months researching vaccines again for my kid. I'm also dating an ER trauma nurse. He's been so instrumental in not judging me and helping me work through my perspectives and how I came to my conclusions honestly due to the bubble of naturopathic doctors and holistic health people, all very smart and educated that I was in. Anyway, your poking me had me begin to question my choices. I've decided to start to get my six-year-old child vaccinated for the major ones and start to build my confidence. So I have, she's almost six, so I have a lot of catching up to do. I feel more peace in my heart now and realize that maybe I did make a mistake before, even though I was doing my best. I'm in touch with a great public health nurse and she's walking me gently through my fears and answering all my questions. Thanks for opening the conversation with me. It took a while to process, but it has led me here, which I feel is good and right. And then this last one, as a mom, I never want to put my child in danger and I hope this is the right choice. I was really happy to sit down with Heather Simpson and Lydia Green. Uh, they run a website called Back to the Vax. Uh, Lydia was featured in an NPR story uh, about resisting having her own children vaccinated uh, and how that turned around for her. And then Heather has recently appeared on CNN uh, about her previous life as an anti-vax influencer. So Heather is a mom uh, who was popular in the anti-vax community. Um, she dressed as measles for Halloween, uh, which was the least scary thing she could think of. Uh, this is from their, their website. She also made multiple viral anti-vax polls on Facebook. Now, Lydia was an anti-vaxxer for 12 years and wrote a story about her journey to changing her mind and bringing her own three children up to date. She's now in nursing school 
to get into public health and to help deal with the problem of vaccine hesitancy on the front lines. Here's our conversation. Lydia and Heather, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us on Conspirituality Podcast. Of course. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Um, Now, can we start with your personal stories about coming to anti-vaccine ideology? Maybe, I don't know, Heather, did you want to go first? Um, Sure. Yeah. So I grew up pro-vaccine. I mean, I received all of my vaccines and I got my flu shot in 2015. I got my tetanus shot um, a couple of years before that, just because I thought I accidentally poked myself with rusty jewelry. I mean, that's how unscared I was. Unscared. I don't know. It's a word. I just rushed to get a tetanus shot. So vaccines were never scary um, until I started, my husband and I started considering um, children and we were trying to get pregnant and we came across this ad for this docu-series about vaccines and we watched it all nine hours of it and it blamed everything under the sun on vaccines and wow. by the time we were done with it we at least i um was just like man my child will absolutely die like she'll just die if she gets a vaccine right I mean, that it i just went completely 180 after that docu-series and I was terrified. It sounds like, I mean, you said it was a nine hour series. It sounds like um, a very immersive experience. Was it something that you both kind of binge watched all at the same time or did it unfold slowly or? Um, It took a couple weeks just Mm -hmm. because it was a lot. But the thing that got me is that it was mostly doctors that Mm -hmm. they interviewed. I mean, they interviewed a couple of moms and dads, but these were doctors. So it was very hard for me to think that it was not true. Right. And were their statements sort of unequivocally foreboding or were they just sort of hesitant and uh, you, you inferred your sort of new vaccine stance from, from the inferences? Oh no, they were, they were definitely against vaccines and blaming the issues that children face today completely on vaccines. Wow. Yeah. Now, now some of the names we might be familiar with, I'm assuming that Andrew Wakefield was in this film. Were there a number of other sort of famous, famous doctors as well? Uh, yeah. I'm trying to remember, of course, Wakefield was in it. Um, I think Dr. Tenpenny was in it. Right. Uh, well, and I know, RFK Jr. is not a doctor, but he was in it. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, and there there was a pediatrician. I think it's like Paul Tom, Thomas. Paul or Thomas, yeah. Yeah. And, and Lydia, h- how did you come to your anti-vax stance? So mine started before this. I know the series she's talking about, that's actually fairly recent. I've been in the anti-vax community probably since 2008. Um, and it started when I had my daughter. Um, I took her to her two-month vaccines. I used to be a 
uh, quality control chemist actually at a pharmaceutical plant. So it's fairly pro-science. Even during my pregnancy, I got a flu shot. So for me, it was when I had taken her for her vaccines and she had a reaction that scared me. She cried a lot. She wouldn't nurse. She wouldn't really look at me anymore. She would sleep this really deep sleep. And and being a first-time mom, it, it terrified me. I, I saw my baby literally change overnight from, you know, this happy, healthy baby to this uh, baby that just didn't want to be comforted and, and just didn't seem herself. And when I called the public health nurse, she had assured, tried to assure me that that was normal and I was not assured. So, and actually I kind of felt blown off because she's like, well, you're a first-time mom. I understand it's a bit intense, but I assure you like this is this is just a normal reaction. And I didn't feel like it was normal. It felt very not normal to me. So um, when we finally got through it over the next couple of days, I started looking for answers on the internet and I found them in the anti-vax movement, you know, like, so then you find a way to, you feel like you have this way to never let that happen to your child again when they, you know, what I thought my daughter went through after talking to all these women was basically cry encephalitis and they'll show you things like vaccine inserts and, and as evidence. And so you believe that your child has this horrible reaction. And uh, now that I, you know, looked into it, it's actually known as like a, a localized pain reaction. It's quite common. And obviously my daughter didn't have encephalitis. There'd be a lot other a lot worse things going on if that was the case. So, but right. yeah, so, it's easy so this, to get sucked in for sure. So this was a, this was a very frightening experience, but it, it resolved in a couple of days mm-hmm. and, but you still were driven to try to figure out what that response actually was. And the, I, I suppose the public health nurse could have, sh- could she have told you more about, you yeah. know, it being a localized pain response or? Yeah, she didn't say that. She okay. didn't explain anything about it to me, just that it was normal. And I'm like, right. well, this may be common, but it's not normal to me. Like, this is ridiculous that you find this normal kind of thing. And I just felt very blown off by her. Um, right. Just kind of trust me, but not really explaining why. I suppose if she, if she just said like, why don't you bring her in? You know, that would have been nice. But she's like, if you really believe this is terrible, like you should take her in. And I was like, but you're telling me she's fine. Like it was very conflicting and a very like, very traumatic. I, I, the whole thing was very traumatic for me and it, it stood with me for a long time. So it sounds like a very patronizing response too, right? Like, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so, and then when you have like that coupled with talking to other people that, are welcoming and warm and, Mm. and, you know, helpful, then you kind of start trusting them more than the person that, you know, blew you off. Now you, you were working as quality control in a lab setting for a pharmaceutical company. And I'm wondering, you said that you were in sort of a pro-science environment, but did that environment provide you with any resistance to anti-vax rhetoric? Or were you suddenly in the position where you're getting this, uh, supposedly new information and now you're questioning even your job as well? Yeah, well at this, so when I had my daughter, we moved away. My husband got a job, we moved away. And so I had moved, I'd left my job when I was about three months pregnant. So I was no longer working in that setting. And I was uh, a stay-at-home mom and I was embracing that and, and joining all these mom groups. And in 2008, like 
that was when forums were really huge. There was quite a few main forums that, you know, some more mainstream and some more crunchy. Uh, I preferred the crunchy ones because I, in it felt like that was, if you want your kid to turn out to be the best, that was the way to do it, even though it, you know, that style of parenting has its difficulties, but right. it's worth it because you want the best kind of thing. So, right. Yeah. Now, did either of you hold any other kind of anti authoritarian or skeptical or perhaps even conspiratorial views before your anti vax days? Or was this kind of new territory for you both? Oh, wow. Um, that's a good question. I was never a conspiracy theorist before all of this. I honestly didn't know that conspiracy theories really existed. I mean, the flat earth theory was very new to me. I mean, my mind was absolutely blown when I heard about that one. I was a Republican, uh, just in a political sense, and not because I viewed Democrats as some evil conspiracy to take over the world and but yeah, this was all new to me. And I did toy around with the conspiracy theories once I was in the anti-vax world. Uh, I tried to buy the conspiracy theories. I tried to buy into QAnon and things like that, uh, Fall Cabal, but I just couldn't get there. I mean, I bought it for like quite literally 48 hours and then I just I just couldn't do it. I, could, <laughs> I couldn't do it. So I, I never really became one even with everything else and I'm still not one. Right. I mean, it's kind of fascinating because I was going to ask whether in your sort of anti-vax socializing, whether you had bumped up against QAnon material and it sounds like, yeah, clearly you did. Um, was it really rampant in those spaces? Is that what you both remember? I, um, I left the movement before they started really getting into QAnon, but uh, so like the, the anti-vax movement has kind of shifted in a, a lot of ways over the years. So when I started in 2008, it was more liberal. It was more hippie-ish. Like there was, it was not really aligned with the Republican right like it is today. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but the, the same conspiracies are there. So they're just recycled. Like the whole like uh, baby eating cabal thing from QAnon and stuff like that was, that's, it's very old. It's, it, it's not, I'm sure you've done some research on that, that it's right. not really a new thing. It's just been kind of recycled into what you see in QAnon today. I was into conspiracies for a bit. I, I watched Loose Change and the uh, Zeitgeist mm -hmm. and the Esoteric Agenda. I, I, I was in my young adulthood, like age like 20 to 23 ish. I was really into them for a while. And then I kind of resolved to go, well, we just don't know. Like, mm -hmm. so when you, so, so it's interesting because we've had a number of, of guests who describe going through this arc of um, being a young adult or a teenager and being very much captivated by the, you know, the, the sort of anti-textbook narrative around the World Trade Center, for example, and then realizing that the, you know, the, the, the information that they're taking in is not 
verified or it's not cited or it's, you know, it's not holding up in various ways and then slowly making their way back into sort of a more consensus reality place. But um, I'm wondering when you, when you, encountered this stuff in the anti-vax movement, did it bring you back to almost like a, an earlier time of fascination in your life? Did it, did it, did it remind you of something that had been exciting? Yeah. And I, I, and I did, it's not that I stopped believing in the conspiracies. I just kind of like, okay, they're out there. Mm. So, but the, the seed is already planted that, you know, anything that is from an authoritative place is probably corrupt. Right. So then when you start hearing about, you know, vaccines harming kids, then you think, well, that could be corrupt too. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that I gave up or stopped believing in the conspiracies, but I just kind of went through that phase and then just let it go. Cause it's not like you can do anything about that stuff anyway. Right. Right. <laughs> like if you actually like, and I think that's the whole point is kind of, puts you in a position where you you feel like powerless to do anything really it's such a paradox because yeah. it, it's supposed to do the opposite it's it's supposed to and according to you know the people who research how conspiracism works it's supposed to give people a sense of agency right like yeah. oh, now i have some secret knowledge and now i'm going to be able to reorient myself towards a corrupt world in a way that's more noble or or that it's on the side of righteousness or something like that but there's literally nothing <laughs> that, yeah. that that we can do about about the QAnon, um, uh, you know, mythos. And, and in fact, that's baked into the, the rhetoric too, where, you know, the Q will ask uh, his followers to enjoy the show, to, to sit back actually, to be observed mm-hmm. in a way. Wait. But something really interesting, which is that, which is that um, you know, you could buy into QAnon or follow the cabal for... Um, for 48 hours. And I'm just wondering like, what, uh, what did the 48 hours feel like? And what, what happened at the end of the 48 hours? (laughs) It was a ride. It was quite a trip. Um, (laughs) What is it called? Pizzagate? Yeah. Oh Lord. I, I mean, the evidence was so compelling. So I just sat there and I was, I was like, Oh my God everyone is evil Mm. and it just I was horrified for 48 hours I was I was truly horrified I think what kind of brought me out of it is that this conspiratorial worldview means that there are so many people that are so evil that are so in on something it's like this underground network of evil and it's so almost impossible to believe. And I just, it was almost like my brain broke. (laughs) I was just like, I can't believe this. This is, this is not, this is not true. This is just ridiculous. Oh my God. I snapped out of it. You know, you make a good point, which is that like the, it, it proposes this overwhelming number of of people who are involved and they're involved in the most abject things and there must be so many people enabling them and tolerating it. But if you're like actual social and family experience um, contradicts that in a way, right? Like if, if you're still able to go out and do shopping and say hello to people and get 
know, a relatively, you know, friendly and community feeling from your daily activities, I'm imagining that would provide a bit of a buffer. Was that a factor for you? Like, did you have relationships that were relatively good? And so how could this other thing be real? Yes, I used to um, work in Hollywood. And so I met a bunch of um, actors and actresses and I, they're apparently involved in, you know, this big cabal and these people are just really sweet people and they're normal people. And um, my network should have supposedly been made up of these evil people. And once you're talking to them straight on, I mean, it's just very... Oh, and here come the conspiracies about you now, Heather, because you worked in Hollywood. Yes. Just so you know, like it's coming. They're going to... I'm sure they're already writing like your conspiracy backstory here. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, you would have to, it's, it's fascinating because you'd have to, if you're, if you're coming from a targeted population like that, you know, uh, so you, you worked in Hollywood in some capacity, or if you had worked, you know, as a civil servant in, in DC under a Democrat administration or something like that, you would have to sort of rewrite your history of relationships and say to yourself, oh, um, actually all of those people were doing something that I didn't see at the time. And now I can see the truth and I can see how evil they were. Uh, and that would be such an incredible leap, leap and, and, a and a, uh, um, and a severance, really, of of history and memory, and and you know your own sense of where you come from. Yes, absolutely. It would it would definitely rock my world, and I just could not I could not buy that. <laughs> uh, Heather, when you said you said it here, but I also heard you say on CNN this fascinating thing that when you got into anti-vax stuff, you were convinced not just that vaccines would pose a risk to your babies, but would actually kill them. And I just, I'm, I'm kind of taken aback at how intense that is. Um, have you been able to understand how you, that became such a life and death idea for you? It's almost like a light switch. If the, if the child gets a vaccine, it will be fatal. Not just, you know, there might be injury, but it will be fatal. Well, in that docu-series, they connected SIDS to vaccines. Oh. Uh, so I, my daughter did have health issues and um, I just, I was already on edge due to her health issues. But because all these doctors connected vaccines to SIDS, I, I basically form this connection in my brain that a vaccine equals SIDS. Wow. That if she gets a vaccine, SIDS will happen that night. And I know that sounds so intense. I can't even explain it. I know a lot of people that also believe this, but yeah. I don't know. There's something that makes sense to me about it because um, SIDS is such a mystically horrific uh, condition and, you know, as a parent myself, it's something that once I learned about it and I realized that, you know, there's no explanation for it and there doesn't seem to be 
there seem to be protections against it with regard to sleeping positions and so on. But um, like, it seems to be that SIDS and, and vaccines, if you were scared about them, would occupy this equal category of uh, just a completely unknown danger that, and maybe the connection gets made that way. Does that sound, does that sound plausible? I think people need to have a reason for something happening and this mm. offers a reason. Yeah. And so you, it's easy to latch onto it. And then when I was in the anti-vaccine world, many moms would come forward saying my child got their vaccines and then died of SIDS a few days later. And what, I mean, we know that vaccines happen at the same time as life. And unfortunately those connections can be made by these parents and it's, it's so horrific what happened to their kids. But I was in this state of fear already, this fear-based mindset. So I was reading these stories and it just solidified what I already felt. <laughs> and it almost provides you with like a secret code to stop all these things from happening. Yeah. So you have this like tiny life you're responsible for. And then these people, and a lot of them are like Heather said, doctors, you know, they offer you a convincing argument as to why you shouldn't vaccinate. And in that is this code that they've broken to prevent SIDS, to prevent autism, to prevent ADD, to prevent like allergies and autoimmune disease. And so they, they present it like a cheat code in a way to like game the system, game the health system so that your child will never suffer these consequences. And uh, so it's easy to suck parents into that for sure. Now, Lydia, you've, you've been, you were in the movement from 2008 and you watched a lot of changes. Um, CBC Marketplace has just reported on the fact that uh, Sherry Tenpenny is currently charging people about 600 US dollars for an online training program that uh, turns people into uh, anti-vax recruiters. Um, That's disgusting. And that never happened while I was in the movement. Yeah, like, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, that, yeah, no, right, no, right. that is that is so deplorable. Um, no, when I was there, it sh they would offer programs like how to detox, how to mm -hmm. like there are more like supplements and and programs to like kill your candida off or detox the metals from your body. Like they're really into these vague. Uh, conditions that actually a lot of them don't even have a basis in the medical community. Right. So yeah, they'll identify like candida overgrowth is a big one and you can not even really prove that short of like actually having an acute thrush infection, like, right. but they'll tell everyone that's their problem or, and it changes. There's like a different theme every couple of years of what's causing all these problems, but yeah, they sell all these like kits and, programs and stuff but, but it was really restricted to sort of the sort of personal wellness and yeah. healthcare thing but now we have uh it almost sounds like an an mlm type structure where uh people are now being trained to produce propaganda i'm wondering yeah, but they're crazy. not but they're not going to be paid i suppose like like just like an mlm money. right i guess so right <laughs> Um, it's yeah. not a pyramid scheme. Right. 
right? So, so it, so I guess, I guess my question is like, is this an escalation? And it sounds like, it sounds like, mm-hmm. yes, it is. Um, yeah. Heather, was that part of, was that starting to happen in the, in the groups that you were involved with? I understand that, that, you know, you became, you know, quite influential as an influencer. And I'm wondering if, if there was a possibility at some point within your path towards monetizing that. I was offered money um, by one of the more prominent anti-vax men and I declined. Um, the only money I received, I sold a shirt. <laughs> well, what, what, one shirt, one shirt or a merchandise? Um, it was one shirt that said uh, global health threat because the World Health Organization listed anti-vaxxers as a global health threat. So I was a horrible person and I... Right made that a shirt and I, I think I made 350 bucks. So that was, that was the big, uh, that was like your, that was like your badass shirt that you would go skateboarding in or something. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But what happened and this is, this is going to get me crucified, but the MLM business is booming amongst anti-vaxxers. And so, um, these influencers will post, um, anti-vax propaganda and get, a ton of reactions and then they'll post their MLM post right afterwards. And so they are making a lot of money from MLMs and it's fascinating. Like I have noticed some of the top influencers will post about me, get a ton of responses and then immediately post their MLM. You mean they'll post, they'll post criticisms of you? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Oh my God. Wait, so wait a minute. Okay. Let me just put this together. So you've got, MLM people who are gaming anti-vax uh, um, f- uh, social media algorithms yes. in order to sell their products. They may not even, am I right that they might not even give a shit about vaccines? I think they do care. And, um, but a lot of them, they do care. I would say they absolutely do care. Okay. Most, of them, most of them, but they, they know what they're doing and they, I mean, and when I say they post criticisms about me, they know that post is going to blow up. And I will literally watch as their very next post is an MLM product. Oh so my I gosh. think they care, but they know how to monetize it. So you so it's not just that the the MLM um upliner is parasitizing the anti-vax group. Now they're trolling you within the anti-vax group for maximal engagement. Yep. It's- that's, that's an incredible, I'm so sorry, Heather. <laughs> I'm laughing defensively. I hope you are too. I am. Oh it's, my God. How does it feel though? Are you, are you, do you have to shut it off? Like, you know, uh, I used to get so upset and it used to really freak me out. But because I do view it as a cult and I left the cult, I know that they have to be defensive and they have to stand up for themselves because if somebody that really bought into it could leave, then what does that mean for them? And so my new response is to ask them if they are okay, because if you are that unhappy with your life, I have to ask, are you okay? And then it, you know, it just kind of puts them on the defense and then I kind of sit back and laugh. I can't let it get to me, you know? Right. 
My goodness. Um, has it been, I mean, has it been difficult to lose the, the content that, or the contact that you had during that time that must have felt validating in a while, for a while? Um, you know, what's more difficult is losing my real life friends. Right. I, I've lost so many of them. I don't. You know, that, that is harder. I don't mind not having followers on the internet. That's so fleeting, but the real life people, that's, that's a lot harder. Right. Right. Um, Lydia, did you, did you experience anything similar? Um, I was not so... I stopped being on the online community so much. Like I got rid of my Facebook a couple years ago. Um, so I did not experience like that side of things like Heather did. Um, but uh, for like online presence and stuff, I feel like I lost a lot of the people, like the moms I used to reach out to when it, when it came to parenting right. in general, because there was like a tight community around that. But now I also realize like I'm probably better off for it because a lot of these things I was into in terms of like evidence based versus like, you know, crunchy mom based care, like you're better off, you know, following the advice of a doctor a lot of the time. So, right, right. Um, I'm, I don't think I'm missing out too much, but I do miss that sense of community for sure, where you have this like group of like-minded moms that you can turn to when things are not going the best in right. your parenting or whatever. So Lydia, you're Canadian as I am. And, you know, you and I enjoy almost universal health care. And mm -hmm. I would say a generally less antagonistic relationship to the medical establishment, because I think it tends to meet our needs in a, in a general sense. But Heather, you're in Texas, right? I am. And yeah. there's a, like a ton of uninsured people who have, you know, a lot less reason to trust public health. Um, how do you both feel your political climates impact vaccine hesitancy or resistance and, you know, how these online groups functioned? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, I think because our healthcare system is such a wreck, and um, we view it as this booming business that just wants to take our money. So if they want to take our money, they must want to take our money with vaccines. And this right. vaccine campaign must be all about money. I think if it was universal health care, it would be, we would feel like it was more of a sense of caring for each other and wanting the best for the patients instead of just wanting to monetize vaccines and get money from people. And, and Lydia, did you have the sense that um, a kind of Canadian orientation towards healthcare was being influenced by- I think uh, they don't push them here as much. Okay, like. Right. I'm, like if you're going to your, it, where I live, you take your baby to a general practitioner, unless your child has significant issues, then you go to the pediatrician. So at the general, general practitioner visit, they weigh your baby and they ask, 
you know, I think it was just a brief five second question, you know, are you up to date? And I'd go, yeah, yeah. Pretend I didn't hear that kind of thing and mutter and not answer. And then, you know, if I didn't want my kid vaccinated, I just didn't have to go to public health visits. Cause there's two, it's like that the vaccination visit is at public health. And then your doctor visit is your doctor and that's separate. So it was easy for me to kind of avoid having that discussion very often. Um, and as far as like healthcare, uh, like in Canada, we don't, I think in our constitution, there's uh, like, uh, you have the right to inform consent and a, cr- a crisis of conscience. So if you are opposed to vaccination for any reason, like you, they, they can't really, f- it's really hard to make vaccines mandatory in Canada because of the way our uh, uh, Bill of Rights and Freedoms is. So, but every so often I would find myself writing letters to the uh, the, uh, the health ministers and whatnot saying like you, I saw today they were talking on the news of mandatory vaccination. And I just like to remind you that in this part of this code, you can't do that. And then I'd get a letter back saying vaccines are safe and effective and you should vaccinate your children. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, like right. in the nicest, politest Canadian way possible. So, right. yeah. Um, did you find did you find Lydia that the that the online climate though was um, influenced by American politics in a way that made it difficult to sort of really yeah in the way that a lot of the uh, leaders that you know like the the doctors and stuff they're all American right so there wasn't really too many Canadian doctors although we did have our own uh, Canadian anti-vax group called. Uh, Vaccine Risk Awareness Network. And I think they've recently changed their name, but that was a huge one for Canada with Canadian specific laws and ways to get around. I think there's a few uh, provinces that require vaccination for school and they would give you ways to get around that uh, legally with forms and whatever else you needed. So yeah, it it definitely is different, but it's the influence is the same because the doctors and stuff that you're going to for your your authority and your information is they're from America. It's like Tenpenny and Mercola and uh, Humphreys, so like all those doctors. So. Right. Um, Heather, your story is out there now on CNN, which I imagine is giving you a lot more exposure uh, online, both positive and negative. Uh, and you're on camera now with a very pro public health point of view, but they also interviewed you with your husband and uh, he's not so convinced. Um, now, do you, do you mind me asking how that's working out? Um, yeah. So it's not that he is afraid of vaccines per se. He mm-hmm. just does not believe that they are necessary. Um, he is of the mind that measles disappeared due to, um, cleaner public facilities, facilities and things like that. So as far as with our child, it, we, we have a lot of conversations, you know, okay, well, which vaccine are you okay with? At what point are you okay with this? And we go back and forth and it, it is hard. Uh, I wouldn't say it's affected our relationship, but it is it is definitely hard because we we very much disagree. I, I believe that the tetanus shot is absolutely necessary. And he believes that tetanus is just not a risk. 
Right. And, but that the risk of the vaccine itself is something that he, that gives him pause when it comes to whether or not your child's going to get it. It's so weird because when you straight up ask him, are you, are you scared of the tetanus vaccine? He'll say, no, not really. I really don't think anything bad would happen. I just don't think it's necessary, but you have to understand the way he grew up was to let a fever run its course and, you know, not to take Tylenol and not to take things, you know, unless absolutely, absolutely necessary. So he comes from a unique point of view where I view her running around barefoot as a tetanus risk because tetanus lives in soil. He believes you would have to live on a farm and be working around newer to need right. a, a shot. It's interesting, you know, as you're saying, um, growing up in a in a context in which, you know, medicines were taken as a last resort, I, I am familiar with that that demographic and that subculture. It's it's not what I grew up with, but um I'm wondering like it's kind of uh, it's it's parsimonious and it goes back it can go back a long way in generations to a kind of um just a conservative i'm not i'm also not going to take resources where i don't need them uh there's something about it that seems seems class based as well like i i don't i i'm self sufficient and i will get by and you know unless i'm in deep trouble i'm 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 not going to take a handout almost yeah, that, that is what he believes, that he is a very conservative person. Mm. And that does definitely align with with the rest of his lifestyle and his beliefs. But there's pride and self-sufficiency in that too, right? It sounds like? Yes. Yeah. I, I would say so, yes. Um, now, I was going to ask about uh, Lydia in, in an NPR article. Um they they covered a little bit of your story and you didn't use your last name and you know we're not going to use your last name on the podcast here uh you've said that you'd like to avoid community backlash and i'm wondering are you talking about uh fellow parents or people that you work with uh, and is this still an ongoing concern a little bit of both i think because i i haven't actually told too many people in my community what i'm doing now because a lot of people didn't know that i was not a I was an anti-vaxxer, like just a few clo of my close friends, but I live in a small community where everyone knows everybody, you know, like, so I just kind of kept a lot of stuff to myself, but it also comes from a fear of what I've seen anti-vaxxers do to other people that are leaving and how they swarm people. Like Heather is kind of going through that right now with her CNN thing. But even um, in that NPR article, I was with Dr. Nicole Baldwin there and, and she, she made a simple, cute TikTok video and she got death threats and they were harassing her at her place of employment and putting bad reviews up on her clinic. And just like they get together and once they decide, you know, you're a target, then they, they put together a lot of energy to try to make your life a little miserable for a while. And I figure if I stay a little anonymous that hopefully I can avoid that. And just cause I do live in such a small community that it would pretty be pretty easy to find out things about me that I just would rather not deal with. Yeah. Uh, Heather was, was, it a feature of your own online experience that 
if somebody was leaving the fold that you witnessed or participated in that kind of that kind of piling on when they left yeah or if or if somebody was doubtful or if they if if they looked like they were being a turncoat no i I've always had the belief that you should treat people respectfully, even if they disagree with you. And so I never wanted to join in on the online harassment. And I would, when I would see the anti-vaxxers gang up on some people, I would sometimes post things like shame on you and um, kind of stand up for those people because I don't want to be a part of that. That's ugh, that's just ugly. How did that go over when you actually appealed for, you know, um, etiquette? They were mad. They didn't like that. Right. I um, I did this online debate with a, a pro-vaxxer and her and I were very uh, polite with each other. We had... We did it live. We had over 500 people watching and I was very shocked at the end of it. The anti-vaxxers were furious with me because I was so polite to her. They called me stupid. They said I was weak. They said I didn't stand up for them. And I was unfriended by maybe four or 500 people that day because I was so polite to her. But was were there anybody was there anybody who said that who appreciated your your manner uh from a strategic point of view a few people a few people but that was not the general consensus i mean it just seems like if you want a you know uh an admittedly fringe perspective to gain more mainstream uh, acceptance that you would put the most diplomatic voice forward, but it sounds like that's not what the group wanted. Right. They view you as weak if you are diplomatic. And so they viewed me as weak. It's they, they are so pro medical freedom, but that's not what they're actually pro. They're pro you not vaccinating and God forbid you use that medical freedom to vaccinate. They want you to suffer and they will verbally abuse you. They are not diplomatic people for the most part. Now that I'm not talking about all of them. There are a lot of sweet ones that I still keep in touch with that have genuinely good hearts, but a majority of them want the drama and the harassment for these pro -vaxxers. And it's also fueled by anger. I, a lot of them Really, I'm not sure about the ones at the top, how much they believe of what they say. I, I, I tend to believe that they're probably grifters, but the parents that actually believe that all their child's problems were caused by a vaccination or that all of the world's health problems are caused by vaccination, every chronic illness. Every, like if you really believe that, you're going to be a really angry person. And so when you talk to people uh, that don't agree with you about the cause of all the suffering in the world, then you're going to get very frustrated and angry and, and want to shut it down as quickly as possible, especially if they're trying to talk you out of that position. So right. it's definitely a very, there's a lot of psychology 
uh, involved, I think, in how these people act. I can understand the anger, for sure, given the intensity of the belief. I guess the strategic question that comes up for me, uh, Heather, with what you're describing is, do you have the sense that the people that you're talking about who are angry at you because you're too polite, do they want to win? Like, do they, do, is that what they're in it for? Like, what's the, what's the, what's the end game or goal? Do they believe they can win? They do. They do believe they can win and they, and they have won. I mean, right. In True. a few states, they've put together these grassroots efforts to um, abolish certain proposed legislation. And so they believe that they can win over the country if they just are strong enough and get together and win enough people over. This is a war for them. This is, I mean, America is a battlefield for them. This is not just fun and games on Facebook. I mean, I've seen actual threats from these women and they're cheering each other on over these threats and it's a bit frightening this is this is war for them well it's incredible really um that this issue has become the flashpoint that it is of course it's built up over the last 25 years or so um it's just occurring to me to ask whether or not any of you are aware of any um i mean you've 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 discussed threats and, uh, of course, you know, some, some threats might be actual, actually criminal in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but have you heard any reports of like real world violence or vandalism or property damage or um, are, are pro-vax activists being doxxed or... Um, I know Senator Richard Pan was assaulted. Right. Okay. Um, and he's a very pro-vax, like he's a pediatrician and a senator in California. And I know they, they got together and, and they, they pushed him and I want to say they poured something on his desk, but I'm not going to say exactly because I, I'm not sure I'm remembering how accurate it is, but I think they poured like red fluid or something. I don't, yeah. Is that, Heather, do you remember that? It was fake blood. Yeah. Onto his desk. Like there's some really uh, irrational behavior uh, when they get together in a mob. I just read a post from an anti-vaxxer that said, and it was ambiguous, but it said, mark my words or something like that. We will make sure that you never see the light of day again and you can never expose your face again. So it's very hard to know who they're talking about, but it's, it's very intense. Yeah. There's a lot of like innuendos in some of the comments Heather's even getting now. And I've been trying to kind of help her like watch her page and say like, Hey, that's not appropriate, but there's a lot of them coming out of the woodwork now to try to put her down. Does this now, Heather, does this put you in the position where you have a fork in the road between uh, timeline hygiene and blocking and leaving enough doors open to your former community that you're able to effectively communicate with them? 
it is such a hard balance because I have so many people saying, why don't you shut your profile down on private? You are just seeking this attention. No. And they also say that because I was on TV and I personally think that's ridiculous because I don't think they would say that to a man um, that was on TV, but that's a whole nother story for a different time. I, uh, I do struggle between blocking certain people and allowing them on my profile because I don't want echo chamber. Um, I don't care that people say that leaving my profile open is for attention. It's not for attention. It's for conversation because that conversation is what makes change happen. Now, if somebody, there is a line, if somebody crosses it and if they are harassing someone or threatening, I will block them. I will report them. I will take note. I will screenshot. Um, it, it is stressful and you kind of have to be on top of it because and then there's also the the side that says, why aren't you standing up for us? Well, because I just got 4,000 comments and I, and I can't, I can't emotionally be healthy and read them all. And, you know, so, and Lydia helps me out a lot. She jumps on the comments and defends me and things like that. But it's, it's a hard balance beam to walk on. Do you feel like as you're describing this, it seems to me, I mean, from the comments that we've had from um, interviews that we've done with people like Imran Ahmed of the Center for Countering Digital Hate, who proposes that, you know, if if anybody in your timeline or anywhere else is uh, posting disinformation that, you know, in order to demote that actual data in terms of what the algorithm is doing, you really have to delete or block it, uh, just like as if it were the virus itself, as if it were COVID. Um, because as he explains the, you know, the actual controversy within the Facebook comment thread actually makes that data, that content more attractive to the algorithm. And, and even if they come in and they, they use AI to comb through and try to remove disinformation, it's actually the emotional engagement that Mark Zuckerberg wants uh, mm. for, for, you know. <laughs> and it doesn't just, always work either. Right. Like I've had, uh, I, I got kicked off of Twitter because I said vaccines didn't cause autism to a person that was saying vaccines cause autism. And they kicked me off of Twitter for, for saying that. And I, I was going to fight it, but then it would have taken me days. So I was just like, oh, I just waited for my, my suspension to be over. And I was like, whatever. But yeah, the algorithm so, also doesn't always work. So it got it backwards, actually. It it's got like, it backwards right. and it kicked me off for actually uh, trying to fight that misinformation. But I'm just hearing about you talk, Heather, you're talking about like, um, you know, you've got 4,000 comments on a post and, and Lydia's, you know, helping you out with a comment thread and defending you. And all of this time is being expended on, on social media. And I know that that's where hearts and minds are being changed, but I'm also wondering where else the action is. Like, is, is that where you know, pro-vax or, 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 you know, diminishing vaccine hesitancy has to happen? Or do you also think about other forums or, or sort of, you know, policy landscapes in which you could be, in which you could also be active? I spoke to somebody um, about this and 
she once COVID is not over, but you know, things start opening up again. I am going to be booked for speaking engagements. And my, my goal is to speak with doctors about how they could speak with their patients. Like someone like me could have been persuaded differently when my child was a baby. And that would be more helpful than the comment section. I'm uh, doing a webinar on the 8th that is for doctors. Uh, It's got, uh, last I heard, 57,000 doctors invited to it through, uh, it's the uh, Indiana Coalition of Vaccination run by their university. And uh, yeah, me and- Can you just say that again, Lydia? There's 57,000 people signed up? uh, That they've invited. I don't know how many are going, but that's how many medical professionals they've invited to this. And uh, it's me and uh, Dr. Nicole Baldwin, who we did the the NPR uh, segment together. Right. And yeah, it's just they're gonna. It's a webinar where they're just gonna ask uh, us questions on vaccine hesitancy and how to combat it, and how doctors and medical professionals, uh, with that first contact, how can they, you know, prevent that from happening? So. Is that like, well, you have this experience with a public health nurse, um, uh, I guess by telephone, which was really significant for you. But are you, is it your understanding that the research on vaccine hesitancy now says that that first contact is is crucial when somebody raises a concern? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's what they're starting because they're, they're really starting to investigate like how that happens. And a lot of times it is it can be traced back to a specific encounter and even further back. Like I used to, I used to think my, that was the encounter that sowed the distrust, but I can even take that further back to when I was pregnant with my daughter and I was coerced into a C-section that I didn't want. And then when I was breastfeeding her and a doctor said, Oh, you know, don't be so heartbroken if it doesn't bro- work out for you. And then like dismiss me that way. And I had to go, I actually, that's when my, that was my first contact with the mothering forum. And they actually helped me get through my breastfeeding difficulty as opposed to like the doctor or the nurse that was supposed to help me, but told me not to be so brokenhearted. It's not a big deal if it doesn't work out, but it was important to me. So yeah, those first contacts that uh, a mother has with uh, their physician is so important to instill that trust. Well, specifically, and- specifically mothers, because it, it sounds like my understanding is that it's, uh, it's, it's mothers groups that are at the forefront of vaccine hesitancy in yes. terms of social media. Right. Yeah. So, wow, women, so it's, and right. mothers need to feel comfortable turning back and trusting And it's a whole systemic problem, right? Because they don't always have a lot of time either. Doctors get burnt out. You know, there's a lot of issues within the system that contribute to this. But definitely, you know, women need to feel like they can trust and have a rapport with their primary care physicians again. Right. Well, this is amazing to hear that you're going to be giving this webinar and it's outside of like it's firewalled off from Facebook. (laughs) Yeah. And and that's going to be amazing, I imagine, for you to actually be in an environment where um, people are freely exchanging evidence based ideas and you're not kind of. 
um, engaged in in something that is much more like a psychological culture war than than uh, yeah. an endeavor in public health. Yeah, Heather, is there anything like that coming up for you? Um, not of that nature. Like I said, I'm just I have someone that is going to book me for speaking engagements, and so I'm hoping that I can speak to doctors. I don't know what those speaking engagements are yet, but that is, I mean, that would be the goal to, to. Heather and I are also, um, we have a private support group that has very few people right now, which is how we want it. We're, it's a very vetted group. We don't want to just let anyone in. It's specifically for people that were in the anti-vax movement or really on the fence and are moving toward vaccinating their children. It's just a no judgment because unless you've been there, you don't know what it's like to make that phone call and take that first step to get your child vaccinated. I couldn't sleep for a month and it, it really messed with me psychologically, even though I knew, I knew I was wrong. It still felt like, it's like trying to train your brain. Like, let's say you're driving and now all of a sudden red lights mean go and green lights mean stop. And you have to like, train your brain to like accept that and it's the same thing with changing your mind on a long-held belief so it took a lot to get moving on vaccinations for me and I know that's a very difficult position and in pro-vax groups it seems to be like all or nothing like they want to tell people like yeah they're safe and effective and and I believe that but like when your anxiety is so great you might not be able to do all four shots that they're missing in that first visit you may only be able to start with one and and even in like some provax groups that's not acceptable and i'm not saying that there's evidence like you shouldn't obviously delay or space out vaccines in a normal setting but when somebody's been living in that culture for so long it is so hard for them to vaccinate that they'll need a different kind of support than the average person would need to vaccinate their children. So Heather and I have started a group for that. We have a website called uh, backtothevax.com where we're trying to compile stories of other parents that have left the anti-vax movement and share how they worked that out for themselves. So we it's not just like Facebook engagement that we're doing. Uh, we're trying to start other little projects here and there to see, to try to reach a broader audience and and help the vaccine hesitancy uh, problem. So, um, Heather, well, I guess one last question, but Heather, I just wanted to note that I think earlier in our conversation, you described the anti-vax movement as being cult-like. And I just want to affirm as a cult survivor and researcher myself that you're describing a lot of elements that are very common. Um, the social isolation, the paranoia, the feeling that the group is kind of a, a a safe haven that you couldn't possibly leave. Um, and then of course, all of the social punishment that goes along with, with, with leaving or considering leaving. And then the abuse that follows you afterwards, these are all big red flaggy things. But Lydia, you said that, um, it's kind of like, uh, red lights mean go and green lights mean stop, uh, when it comes to crossing that threshold over into, trusting that the vaccine is going to be okay. And I'm wondering, maybe I'll just finish with, for each of you, was there a single moment uh, in which you felt, you both felt yourself relax into uh, 
a trust in the consensus reality science. Uh, was there one thing that really made the difference? I mean, or was it just a combination of things? For me, sorry, Heather, go I ahead. Just, when I started reading one of Dr. Paul Offit's books and I started talking to a blood-brain barrier specialist and another scientist, it just suddenly clicked that the mechanisms of vaccine injury are not real. They can't happen. Anaphylaxis can happen. But this whole aluminum going into your brain can't happen. And so once that science clicked for me, mm. even though I still had that fear, that was that moment of relief. Like, oh, wow, this is impossible. So it was like a chemical reality that really yeah. opened. Right. Okay. Science. And For and me, it was, uh, sorry. For me, oh. it was like researching um so there was a trope i believed for a long time like heather the blood brain barrier thing because i started to come around kind of like i was going to do like a a slower or more delayed selective schedule and uh so i have a younger child that's under two and i was like well i could vaccinate the older two but i just have to see like what age the blood brain barrier closes at and then when I read, cause I just really believed that trope with all my heart. And then when I went to find like actual evidence of the age, supposedly this happens, I found out that babies are born with an intact blood brain barrier. And I felt so dumb. I was like, how did I miss this? That I, it was just one of the things that I heard over and over and over again, that I just, I really believed with like all my heart. And then I realized like, I'm really wrong about this what else am I really wrong about and so I started kind of going through all these long-held beliefs I had realizing I was wrong and I was able to make that phone call but it really didn't feel okay until I saw for my own self that my children were fine so after that first appointment they got their shots I brought them home and they were fine you know, in the days that followed that I was able to breathe that sigh of relief and say, okay, this thing I built up in my head is not what I thought. And my kids are going to be okay. And I was able to continue after that with no issue. I can imagine too, that like, there's a certain amount of self-trust that then kind of re-enters the picture because in order to be able to say, oh, well, my kids are going to be okay, that, that also reflects on, on, on one's own parenting too, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's amazing that this blood-brain barrier issue, which I hadn't really considered before, was so significant for, for both of you because it, what's so amazing is that so much of the discourse around Vax hesitancy is about the... Um, you know the 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 natural resiliency and the the you know immunological smartness of the human body and how we don't really need to add anything but if they're basing that on on this this supposed vulnerability that the vaccine can cross or the aluminum can cross the blood brain barrier they're actually saying the opposite at the same time, that, that the human body is, is much more vulnerable than it actually is. 
it's a total contradiction because my baby is too weak to withstand, let's say, a tiny attenuated virus. But my baby is also supposedly strong enough to handle a full-blown measles infection. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's totally contradictory. And when you start looking at those kind of examples in the anti-vax community, they're everywhere. Right. And they also give their kids a bunch of supplements for such a natural immune system. They do rely on a lot of vitamins and oils and supplements. Wow. Yeah. Well, just like their ancestors collected hundreds of years ago, right? <laughs> they came off the supplement tree in the backyard. <laughs> Sorry, I get a little sarcastic at times. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, <laughs> it's been a it's been a long journey. Um, I thank you both. Uh, you've really helped me understand a lot of about you know this this particular media landscape and I think it's going to be really valuable for our listeners and I also think that um, the work that you both have coming up outside of this mosh pit <laughs> um, especially is is going to be really exciting to track so I thank you and I wish you both well thank you for having us <laughs> <laughs>